You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. My name is Jamal, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here as lead pastor. We are glad that you are here today and pray uh, that the Lord would meet you where you are. I'm going to pray and then simply uh, seek to explain and apply uh, today's text uh, to our lives. Let's pray. Father, even right now, you... Give us an invitation uh, to know you and to be known by you. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to take you up on that invitation. I pray, Father God, that you uh, allow our minds to be calm and to be present, knowing that what we are about to read and hear about is the very words that you have sent us so that we can grow in Christ's likeness and know you. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to know that your kingdom and your word has not just come in words, but with power. And that it is the power of the gospel that is good unto salvation. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, it says, When he, being Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they came to him. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at what happened on the Passover week or what we call now Holy Week, when Jesus entered into the temple, most likely on Tuesday of that week, and he began to teach. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the the elders um, began to ask him some questions, and their main question was what or who gives you the authority to teach and to do these things. And so Jesus turns that moment into story time in the temple, except the stories that he tells are not cute little children's stories, but rather parables, small stories with big uh, meanings in order to teach them about the kingdom of God, but even more so in order to teach those who are the religious leaders of Israel about themselves. As Jesus was constantly giving them an invitation into his kingdom. Remember, in Matthew chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus' first sermon, he came preaching and he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from a life committed to yourself. Face God for God's rule and God's care is before you of course, in the person of me and of Jesus, he was saying. But over and over, the religious leaders, they rejected this. So Jesus begins to tell three parables. And each of the parables have something in common. 
Uh, One thing that they have in common is that there's a father in each parable and at least one son. And there's also this theme of judgment. But today, uh, parable is kind of centered around the, the analogy of a wedding, of a wedding. And so we see this parable of the wedding banquet, this parable of the wedding banquet. And the main point that we see in today's text is that the king of the universe is sending out an invitation to be a part of his son's kingdom, to be a part of his son's kingdom feast. And and this is what Jesus is inviting everyone who's listening to come and be a part of this kingdom feast. And this metaphor of a wedding is really important because in the first century, in first century Judaism, uh, the Jewish people, they valued weddings even more so than we do in America, American culture. I mean, they really valued uh, weddings. A wedding could last um, for a full week. There was uh, celebrations uh, uh, galore. There was a feast. There was food. There was uh, wine. And a wedding has this kind of messianic implications, right? It, it pointed them to this perpetual celebration that they looked forward when the Messiah came. And so Jewish people took weddings serious. But this is not just any kind of wedding. Uh, the, the, the example that Jesus is going to use in this parable is the wedding of a king's son. This is a royal wedding. This is an important wedding. This is the, the wedding of all weddings. And to uh, deny this wedding, to deny this feast would have been an insult. It would have been uh, horrendous. Um, it, it would have brought shame upon a person. And this is the analogy that Jesus is using. But the main thing I want you guys to see with this analogy is that Jesus is inviting um, these people who are, are, are being invited to this wedding to a feast and not a funeral. Oftentimes when we think about the kingdom of God and maybe when we think about life with God, too often we think about it in terms of it being a funeral. Um, yes, the Bible does tell us and Jesus did teach to pick up our cross and to follow him. And as the apostles teach that there is an element to which we have to put sin to death. But in God's upside down economy and kingdom and his counterintuitive way of living, it is through this death that we actually find life. He who seeks to find life must lose his life. It is not a a death that leads to death. It is a death that leads to life. And Jesus here is giving this parable in the temple as he's talking to the Pharisees and saying, listen, God has been inviting you to a feast with his son as his son is uh, uh, creating a, a people and a community that will be considered his bride. And you all have rejected it. You all have rejected it. And there are three types of people we see in this passage that have rejected this invitation. I'm going to spend most of my time on this first person and then we'll move through the next. But even as we think about this, a lot of times when we hear these parables, we think about these invitations going to those who are irreligious. Um, I've even heard this text preached dozens of times and it's always been to the person who mainly does not know Jesus. 
And that's definitely an application here, and we're going to see that in the text. But the main people that Jesus was talking to were those who would have considered themselves as the people of God and who were deeply religious. And so just because you're religious does not mean that you're partaking in God's kingdom feast. The first type of person we see in this text is the person who is busy making a living instead of a life. The person who is busy making a living instead of a life. And this person is going to reject the invitation. Verse two, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for a son. Each of these parables is focused on the kingdom of heaven. It's like a king who gave a wedding banquet for a son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they did, didn't want to come again. He sent out other servants and said, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. You see this, this invitation to a feast. Yo, there is fattened cattle. There's steak. There is oxen. We got rib tips. Everything is laid out, right? Come to this feast. Listen to verse five. But they paid no attention and they went away. One to his own farm, another to his business. And again, Jesus is pointing this to the scribes and the, the elders and the religious leaders of Israel who taught people to discern and to know God, but who did not know God themselves. They are the ones who have rejected this call into Jesus's kingdom, this call to come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. They have rejected this and, and they're rejecting this for their own business. They're rejecting this for their own financial benefit. See, them as religious leaders, they were in power in, uh, in Judah, Judea. They were in control. Uh, they made a, a, a living off of uh, temple services. Their wealth was connected to it. Early on in the Gospels, we see Jesus is doing things that cannot be explained and teaching with great power. And rather than them pray uh, to God the Father and reveal if he was truly a prophet or the Messiah over and over again, they turned their back on him. They mocked him. They said that he was a demon-possessed man who hung out with uh, drunkards and tax collectors and prostitutes. They paid him no attention and they went back to his, their business and to their own farms. And some of us in here today, we are religious and what God, with a bad religion, and what God is inviting us to is a deeper relationship. And a deeper relationship with God means that we have to turn our attention away from our little kingdoms to his kingdom. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. Seek first life with God under his rule through his son, who is his righteousness, who teaches us to live the narrow way and everything else will be taken care of. 
He's inviting us into a life that is lived from the inside out, from a place where we can find our identity in that which is secure, where we can build our lives on solid ground rather than sand. But oftentimes we choose for the busy life. And we choose to try to invite him to be a part of our lives rather than surrendering to him as Lord and being a part of his story. And Jesus was giving the the scribes and the Pharisees an invitation to slow down and to know God. Not fruitless religion. Japanese theologian writes this. God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is a slow, yet it is Lord over all speed since it is the speed of love. God goes at the speed of love. And even for those who profess to be Christians right now, we're not going at the speed of God, which is the speed of love, to know his love, his redemption, to find our identity in him. Rather, we're going at the speed of this world and it is killing us. It is making us bitter. It is causing us to doubt whether or not uh, if, if God is real or if he loves us because Romans chapter 12 verse 1, do not be conformed to the image and the pattern, the speed of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how do we renew our minds? Psalm 1, by meditating on the word day and night, by practicing silence and solitude, by allowing our roots to grow deep and to be formed, knowing that it's then that we will have success. For he shall be like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yield its fruit and its season and its leaves will not wither. Psalm 128, blessed, happy, flourishing is the man who fears the Lord. For his wife shall be like a fruitful vine in his house and his children like olive shoots around at his table. And everything that he does, he will prosper. That's the good life, knowing Jesus, abiding in him, worshiping him, going to him for our identity, not to the world, not finding our identity and how many likes we get or what type of perception we can put out to the world or or how well our business is doing or how smart we can come off and educated we can come off, but by knowing God himself. Several years ago in 2015, I was, I was busy. I was uh, pastoring a, a church called Forest Baptist Church, dearly beloved church that we came to before uh, coming to Sojourn. And it was probably, I think, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I had my to-do list down. I was like, I'm going to crush it this week. I'm focused, man. I get a phone call. And a gentleman says, is, uh, is this Jamal Williams? I say, yes, it is Jamal Williams. He's like, hey, I'm calling on behalf of the uh, 
uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Commission, the ERLC, um, as well as the, uh, the Philos Project. And we uh, wanted to, Dr. Moore wanted me to call you because he wants you uh, to uh, come and spend some time with him. All expenses paid in Israel. And while you're there, everything's going to be covered. You won't have to worry about security and going through checkpoints when you're there. Um, you're going to spend some time with some Christian, Jewish, Islamic leaders so that you can get a, a clearer perspective of the Holy Land and how uh, complex things are as a, as a pastor. Uh, but I need to know soon because uh, there's uh, only a few uh, people going, and, and you need to let us know if, if you and your wife can make it. And I was so task-oriented that I told him, I said, hey, let me get back to you. Let me, let me get back to you. It's like a day later, my wife and I were in the kitchen, may have been doing dishes or something, and she says, anything new happened recently? I was like, you know, I did get a call from who? Oh, from the ERLC, they want to give us a free trip to Israel um, and all expenses pay for. He said, oh, okay. And what did you say? I, I told him I'll get back to him. She said, pick up the phone and call them back. What are you thinking? <laughs> I said, well, I hadn't really worked out. Like, man, we got to find babysitters. We got to pick up the phone. You call them back. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I reached out to the guy and, and the slots were full and I text uh, uh, Dr. Moore and ended up talking to him. I'm like, I may have just done the dumbest thing I, uh, ever in my life and my marriage is on the rocks because of it. <laughs> and he said, hey, no worries. We did fill your spot, but we're going to uh, make sure we get you there with us. Right. And that reminds me of this. They are invited to a feast. And they're too busy to recognize what God is offering. And but why? Why do we do this as, as Christians? And why do people who believe that they walk with God, but they're not walking with God do this? I think C.S. Lewis nails it with this quote. He says this, I sometimes wonder if all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. We often go with this break our neck speed chasing the latest fads and likes, trying to build bigger barns because we think those things will fulfill us. But as the great uh, African theologian um, Augustine says, they won't. We have a God-sized hole in our heart that only he can fill. Joy is only filled in Jesus Christ. Joy is only filled when we enter into his kingdom and embrace him as Lord and Savior and feast on him. Lewis has another quote that many of you have heard, but I think it's good to hear at least three or four times a year. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't not imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
And some of us right now, what you hear me saying is that Jesus is inviting you to go deeper into theology and to know eschatology and ecclesiology and to cross every T and dot every I. And what he's inviting you to is to be rigid and to memorize. No, what he's inviting you to is a relationship with him, communion with him, which certainly does include us abiding in his word. And, and praying and the fellowship of his saints, but it is a relationship that leads to life. That leads to life. Some of us today, we're more concerned with our business or our farm, with our future than with our presence of, in, the, in the presence of God. And the result is we are bitter, we are dry, we are cold, we are self-righteous, we are not loving our neighbors that are closest to us, and it is sucking the life out of us. Second type of person in this text is those who sought to seek to control God rather than to surrender to him. Look at your Bibles. Jesus, in verse 6 Continues the story, says, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. They seized the servants. So some just said, no, we're too busy. We're going back to our businesses and our farms, which is good. It's good to provide. It's good to work hard. As Christians, we should be uh, some of the, uh, we should be the most ethical, appropriately hardworking people working unto the Lord and not unto man, uh, the, the people that there are. This city should know sojourners by people who love God, do things for his glory, and keep their word. Absolutely. Uh, but we should do that from the inside out, from a place of loving Jesus, not from a place of finding our identity in those things. But the second type of person is the person who sought to control God. And again, these are the Pharisees and the religious leaders who wanted to put God into their box. They memorized the, the Torah and knew it, the Pharisees. That was their main, their main part of the scripture. Then you have the, the scribes and, and others who knew the, the Torah as well as the Psalter and, and the prophets. They knew these things, but they boxed God in and they had in their mind, this is, what it, this is what God looks like. This is how he's going to come. Anything other than that might be rejected. And Jesus came and he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled what the scripture says, but he did it with his mind and his imagination. He literally did it, but he did it as God does it <laughs> in a way that we don't always see, can't predict, nor understand. And they had boxed God in so much in order to manage him and control him so that they could be in control. And it came out with anger. It's going to come out with Jesus being crucified. It came out with the prophets in the Old Testament oftentimes being martyred. It, it came out with John the Baptist having his head chopped off and rather than the Jewish community standing up and saying, no, he's our prophet. Uh, uh, many rejoiced in it. It came out later on in Acts with James being uh, killed by Herod and Stephen being stoned by the religious leaders and the rest of the apostles and the persecuted church now. Those who don't know God, but have their version of God and who inflict people who actually know God because they can't imagine God not being who they built him to be. Third, 
type of person that we see in this text is those who live uh, to do life their way rather than God's way. And this one is a little, little trickier, and, and, it's, and it's interesting. We see that Jesus is going to talk about these people who, who kill uh, his servants who go out with this invitation, and then he's going to open it up um, for um, those who are in the highways and the byways outside of the city uh, to be those who are invited into the wedding. And this represents Jesus's ministry, how he came first uh, to uh, his kinsmen, uh, the Jewish uh, community, and in general, how many of them rejected him. And then he sent the apostles outside of uh, Judea and uh, Jewish communities to the Gentiles and said, hey, come one, come all. But then we have this interesting part of the parable in verse 11. It says, when the king came in to see his guests. So those who were on the outside, this also represents the tax collectors, the prostitutes that we talked about in previous parables, the, the ones that you never would expect to come into the kingdom, according to human logic and reason. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The man was speechless. So what's going on here? This guy, he gets into the the wedding, but he's not wearing wedding clothes. Well, I think it's important to know the thrust of these three parables. And the thrust of these three parables is that those who belong to the kingdom of God are not uh, just those who say they do in word, but it's those whose lives bear fruit. So for example, in the first parable that Jesus tells here in the temple, he talks about there being two sons. The first son says, yes, I will go into the vineyard and work, but he never does. While the second son goes into the vineyard and works. So it's that matter of fruit. Saying one thing and and living another way does not make one a a kingdom citizen. One who is a kingdom citizen is one whose heart has been transformed and their lives begin to look like Jesus more and more over time, right? Jesus, Matthew 4, follow me and I will make you. I will transform you, right? Then we see in the next parable, The most repeated word in the parable is the word fruit. In verse 43, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit. And let's not forget that right before he goes into the temple, he curses a fig tree for having leaves on it with no what? Oh, y'all can say it better than that. With no what? All right. All right. We Baptocostal up in here. Amen. With no fruit. With no fruit. The thrust of these passages is fruitfulness. So here's a man who has come into the wedding and rather than allow the the customs of the king, which was to have on a clean wedding garment to shape him, he has come in in his street clothes, which would have been offensive to anyone throwing a wedding party, let alone the king. But notice how the king deals with them. He calls him friend. He has just disrespected him in an honor, shame, culture, and he calls him friend. He gives him an opportunity to 
repent, to turn from his bad behavior and face God. But the friend does not repent. Listen to what he says. The man was just simply speechless. I think a a perfect example of this person in the parable is Judas Iscariot. He was a man who lived with Jesus for, for multiple years, who said he was his apprentice, who heard his teachings, who had all the right doctrine, who saw demons exercised, right? Who was the treasurer. He appeared to be trustworthy. He was the treasurer. But the whole time he was wearing his own, metaphorically speaking, wedding clothes. Now, some theologians say that this points to justification by faith. That what he's saying is that what Jesus is teaching here is those who try to come into the kingdom in their own works and not receiving the king's righteousness are are, are those um, who will not be invited to kingdom. And theologically, I, I believe that that's true. And I think an argument perhaps can be made, but I think the main thrust of this is that those who say that they've been justified by faith, but whose lives never bear fruit of it, faith without works is dead, are those, Matthew chapter 7, who on the last day will hear the words, the Lord will say to the Lord, 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 I said, I did. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you because you live with Sinatra's mantra that I did it my way. That rather than submit, I think that was Sinatra, to Jesus' apprenticeship. Somebody gave me a yes, so it's good. I know Michael Buble did a cover of it. So uh, those who, see, I'm cultured. Those who submit to the king's way are those who are being transformed by him. And when the king points out that there's an area of their lives that's not submitting, rather than rebel and look at him like he's crazy, they say, yes, Lord. Lord, would you empower me to love you? Would you reshape my desires? Would you make me poor in spirit? Would you bring me to a place of mourning? Would you empower me to, to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Will you? And they live with a constant desperation because they have entered into the kingdom of God through a door that is low and cross-shaped. And their lives is no longer about them, but their king. Then Jesus ends it and says, many are called, but few are chosen. This invitation is going out to many, many, many people. And there is a responsibility that every single human being has to respond to that call. But at the same time, we know that God is the sovereign king and that one is only saved by his grace. It's the mystery of the kingdom. So let me show you a couple things. One, I want to I show you how God responds when people reject his invitation. And we kind of already hit it, so let's only take a minute. The first way that God responds is by giving an open invitation uh, to those who were considered outsiders. We see this in verse 8. Then he told his service, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then 
to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. Listen, listen to this free gift of salvation, this free preaching of salvation. This isn't uh, this hyper uh, God has only chosen to save some. This is you preach the gospel to everyone. You go to the Gentiles, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the nation. It's an open invitation to the wedding. Second is judgment towards those who, sh- who reject them. Listen to how the king responds when his servants are, are killed. The king was enraged and he sent out his troops, killed those murderers and burned down their city. And now we're going to talk about this in length in Matthew chapter 24. But this is a picture of Jesus coming, God himself, and inspecting Israel's uh, fruitfulness or works and seeing that they were fruitless, that they were barren. And we know that Jesus is going to weep over that barrenness. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, Jerusalem. How I longed to gather you you all together like a, a hen gathers her children. And then he pronounces judgment. And this is going to happen. In AD 70, we know that there's going to be fractions within uh, the Jewish uh, uh, community, and these fractions are going to try to overtake Rome. Rome is going to come put the smack down on them. And if you read uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, it is so sad what happens uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem as it is torn down, it is burned, and the temple is burned and desecrated. And this is a foreshadowing. Jesus is foreshadowing what's going to happen in Israel because the religious leaders led the people of God astray. But ultimately, this is what happens to whoever rejects Jesus Christ as Lord. There's not many ways to God. There's one way. There's not many ways up the mountain. There is one way because the God who is on top of the mountain, metaphorically speaking, came down the mountain and he paved only one way up that mountain. And that's not up the mountain on your own strength or through your own uh, philosophy. It's not up the mountain through Buddhism or or any other uh, type of, of meditation or life beliefs. It is on his son's back. There's one way, and it's Jesus. And God has sent servants and is sending servants to all of the nations to tell people that God became flesh and dwelt among us, and he showed us the way to live. Jesus is the way to live. You want to know how to live as a Christian? Model your life after Jesus. Take time to know the Father and his will. To love your neighbor as yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. To reject conforming to this world and knowing that you are part of a greater kingdom. And to pick up your cross and to follow him. Those who reject that, they set themselves up for judgment. And this judgment is not because God is evil, but this judgment comes upon them because they are. 
Because the person who rejects Jesus, the person who rejects the God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the person who rejects absolute truth, is the person who rejects all that is good and beautiful, is the person who is spits in the sovereign king's face and says, I am going to do it my way, which means that they are asking for a life and an eternity without that which is good, without that which is true, without that which is beautiful. And what do you get? You get darkness and weeping of teeth. Verse 13, the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Jesus speaking. And if you want to call me a fire and brimstone teacher, as long as you're prepared to say that about Jesus, call me that. Jesus told them the realities of hell, not because he was unloving, but because he is loving. And he says, choose life. And today, if you're not a Christian, Jesus has sent me as a servant, these musicians as a servant, perhaps your neighbor as a servant. And he says, come to this eternal feast. Know the real meaning of life. Be my apprentice. Find true joy. The last thing I want to show you in this text is God's heart. God's heart is enormous, is gigantic, and is generous. Look, look at the text. Verse 3, he sent his servants to summon those invited. So they heard the first summons. To be invited to a wedding was to get the first invitation. Then once the food came, you got an, another invitation. Then once it was served, you got another invitation. So one group was getting multiple invitations. God was generous. The king was generous to invite these people to come and to be a part of this banquet. Verse 4, again, he sent out other servants. And even after his first servants were killed, he sent out other servants. God's heart is so gigantic and is so generous towards you. If you think I'm lying, if you think I'm lying, keep reading the book of Matthew. And you'll see that his heart was so gigantic that not only did Jesus, who was eternally God, put on human flesh and become a man, and, but he, he became a man to live a sinless life and to die the death we deserve. If you think that I'm lying, just look at what he did. God became a man and he allowed himself to be beat and humiliated, stripped naked, whipped 39 times with a cat of nine whipped. He allowed himself to receive uh, crowns of thorns and to be mocked as the king of the Jews. He allowed himself to be hung high stretched wide, drop low, and put in Joseph's borrowed tomb. If you don't believe God's heart is generous, he rose on the third day with all power in his hand, and he is seated on the right hand of the Father, Father, interceding for me and you. But the story doesn't end there. God's generous heart. 
God's gigantic, enormous heart says that I'm coming back again to make all things right. And on that last day, there will be a wedding supper for my son, for the lamb. And you will receive new clothes of righteousness to trade in those clothes of unrighteousness. You will finally have all of your troubles taken care of and you will feast for all eternity. If you don't believe God's heart is gigantic, I dare you tonight to just turn off your phone, turn off the TV, pick up your Bible and read John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you don't believe God's heart is enormous, I dare you to take inventory on how good he's been to you. And I'm not talking about 10 years ago. I'm not talking about last week. Just take inventory on this morning how he woke you up and clothed you in your right mind. He put some clothes on your back and food on your table and allowed you to be reminded today that there is more to life than the abundance of possessions. There is more to life than likes on Instagram. There is more to likes than a 401k. There is more to life than the thing you're obsessing over. And he has come to give you abundant life. Abundant life, abundant life, true life. Fall to your knees, worship him as king. Know that he is making all things right. I want to close by putting this quote up by C.S. Lewis that we started with, the short one. If we can find it for the screen. I sometimes wonder if all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. What are you substituting for true joy? What accomplishment are you breaking your neck for, for true joy? And for some of us as Christians, we are busy doing the work of the kingdom. So busy doing the work of the kingdom that we're substituting the work of the kingdom for the king himself. Slow down. Worship Jesus. Every Sunday we gather to take a meal together called communion. On the week that would have been Passover week for um, those who were in the Jewish community, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way he took a cup and said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. In front of you, if you are a Christian, we want to uh, ask you to partake in this meal by taking the, uh, the wafer and eating it knowing that this is the body of Jesus and drinking the grape juice, knowing that this is the blood of Jesus. If you're at home right now and you're not partaking in communion, we just want you to, to sit and to reflect on this good news that God's heart is enormous, is gigantic. And today he does not condemn you, but he calls you friend. And every day is an opportunity for us to turn and to trust him 
to trust his blood, to trust his righteousness and not our own, to ask him to empower us to live the good life. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.